Welcome to Carbon Conversations, a podcast by Biochar Life, where we explore the cutting edge of environmental solutions. From biochar to smart agriculture to the climate tech revolution, we sit down with experts and business leaders at the forefront of change. This is your host, Matt Rickard. Hey, Martin, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm excited to be on. And uh, wow, okay, let's address the noise straight away. There was a bit of a noise in the background now. I know, I know you're in, you're in, in, in Nairobi right now, and I understand in your man- manufacturing part. Uh, maybe as a good entry, entry to the podcast, um, we're going to talk about Octavia Carbon, the work you do uh, specifically, which is DAC, direct air capture. Uh, I know you're in your manufacturing plant. Maybe as a good start, do you want to just give us, for our audience, a definition of direct air capture, and then you can explain the the intimate noises we may, we may get from time to time during the podcast. Exactly, and I do apologise for the noise up front. It is the authentic noise of DAC machines being manufactured. Um, but yes, what is direct air capture, or sometimes you know called direct air carbon capture? Um, it is a set of approaches that leverage chemistry in a closed engineered system um, to filter CO2 from air. And then usually you can either use that CO2 or you can store it um, either in geological layers or you can mineralize it in a number of other ways, including concrete. Um, but yes, that would, that's what it is. So broadly speaking, it's chemistry in an engineered machine uh, that filters CO2 from air. Uh, and usually it's a modular approach that like leverages a number of such um, units, such machines um, to like modularly increase uh, CO2 capture. But again, it is important to say that I'm very like general, like I'm generalizing a lot here because there is a number of different approaches to do it. And um, we can go into the detail there a bit if that's interesting as well. Cool. Uh, and yes, the noise is uh, <laughs> us uh, producing our deck technology in the background. Um, we are, you might hear some people that are hammering damper plates into shape and so on. Um, but yes, it is, it is very much a process that involves metal and uh, hoists and a number of other things. And uh, you might hear that on and off in the background. And I might also quickly touch already on the fact that our direct air capture approach is a amine-based solid sorbent approach. Uh, but I'm sure we'll touch into that a bit more. Cool. Look, thanks. And yeah, it's not too distracting and, and great to see you guys, you know, working on the actual equipment in the background. Um, you know, you are very much in, in, in startup mode. Firstly, congratulations. I know you just secured, um, you know, financing in probably in the last few weeks, right? It was relatively recently. Um, uh, t- talk to us about your journey. I mean, in from, from consultant, management consultant into Octavia Carbon, uh, founder, CEO. What, what, was the, what was the journey? What was the inspiration to, to start a, a business like this? What, how did you end up here? No, thank you so much. And uh, yes, it was certainly an interesting journey. So my background, as you say, uh, was in strategy consulting, specifically in the international development sector with a company called Dahlberg. Um, And there's sort of a number of folks uh, that are used to work with data that are now also active in the carbon removal space, uh, like James Mwangi, that some we know, or Bill Van Nirangu, who's also like uh, formerly at Dahlberg. And we were working at some point um, at, on the question of what the major 
job drivers for the African continent will be this century. And it was a sort of moonshot idea competition with the MasterCard Foundation. And my idea, which interestingly converged with that of James Wongi, uh, was that carbon removal can be one such major job driver in um, the, on, the, on, the African, on the African continent uh, this century, just because we know, for one, that we need a lot of it. Um, we know that we're building a large industry, and when you're looking for the talent and on some level also natural resources to, to build that industry, um, various parts of Africa are very interested in, interesting in various ways. And that led me down the journey of becoming the sort of global firm's carbon removal guy and the, the carbon guy, basically, and did all matters carbon at Dahlberg, uh, which is a large the global consulting firm, uh, for about two and a half years or so. Uh, then at some point realized that direct air capture specifically can nowhere be done better than in Kenya. Um, and we'll get into the reasons for that, I'm sure, but that conviction ultimately led me to move my life to Kenya and to start a DAC company here. Uh, and that is now close to two and a half years ago. Um, and I, yeah, I've been going at Octavia Carbon for just 20 months, but have been growing extremely quickly. We're now about 50 people, give or take, which makes oh, us, wow, cool. depending on how you count them, sort of fourth or fifth largest DAC company on earth today. And we're excited that um, all things go well and continue to go well. Uh, we will be the world's second ever DAC company to inject CO2 underground with our great partners at Cellar Mineral Storage. That is later this year. Awesome story. And yeah, congratulations on, on your success so far. I mean, let, let's talk about, you know, why Kenya and, and maybe what's linked to that is, you know, the technical, I suppose, uniqueness of the machines that you you have developed are developing and and how they re they leverage kenya's renewable energy resources um all of that stuff C can you unpack a bit of that and explain to the audience yeah why kenya how the the technical aspects are unique and and in terms of leveraging renewable resources renewable energy absolutely so again as um, I'm sure like a lot of your listeners will be aware, DAC is in many ways really just leveraging renewable energy to do carbon removal. And you know, we need a lot of renewable energy. That is very true. It's very often pointed out. And in sort of like, if you have a context of renewable energy as a scarce resource, uh, which it is in most of the global north, especially, um, then that is a key problem. Again, and, and that is something that you have to solve for. But this big part of the thesis that we have is that um, renewable energy doesn't have to be scarce. In fact, um, there's about 4,000 miles of East African Rift Valley where renewable energy will readily like just like sprout from the ground and sort of like fountains of geothermal energy. Um, and that essentially is the key thing that differentiates Kenya in, in many ways. And there's more that I'll come to. But ultimately, if the key driver here is renewable energy. Our approach is always, let's go look for the cheapest and most abundant form of renewable energy there is. And that is geothermal heat. And again, I'm emphasizing heat here, not so much geothermal electricity, but geothermal heat that you know comes directly from the ground, especially more low-grade geothermal heat that doesn't compete with electricity production. Um, and geothermal areas are just like a really interesting place there, uh, also because they usually come co-located with volcanic rocks. They're generally phenomena of the same nature, 
uh, of the same underlying factors, which is tectonic activity. Um, and that's essentially basaltic rock, uh, which is also very handy because you can essentially mineralize CO2 in it. So again, amongst all the different forms of storing CO2, that is super interesting because for one, it is very scalable. And for another, if you sort of chemically react the CO2 with basaltic rock underground, which again, just to be clear, that's a natural process that we're accelerating, um, then you're also not faced with a long-term liability for that CO2, which you might have in other sort of forms of CO2 storage. And again, the fact that that storage is co-located with that ultra-abundant renewable energy from geothermal um, is also very interesting because transporting CO2 is a very expensive thing to do and also very bad for your com removal efficiency. Um, and so like, you know, just to be clear, that is the amount, amount of emissions that you have for every ton that you capture. Uh, and so like, if you put these together, then yes, there's a number of places on Earth that are really interesting. And you know, Iceland is one, and Kenya is another. But the thing that really differentiates Kenya is also having a really deep pool of talent. And we know that the Global South talent and ingenuity were a key piece to driving literally every other piece of climate tech that we now take for granted down the cost curve. Again, whether we're talking solar, whether we're talking EVs or batteries, you name it, uh, Global South talent was just a key part of that. And it is inspiring that we can give people a very decent and good livelihoods and build up this country uh, at, you know, cost of talent that is a fraction of that of our of our peers in, say, Zurich or San Francisco or Vancouver. Um, and that is something that, you know, like allows us to drive back down the cost curve much faster and to really grow a team and to grow a company at the pace of urgency of the climate crisis as well. And so put these together, and that makes Kenya a really neat place. What our technology does with that, and I'll, I'll touch on that really briefly, um, is essentially we are the first to leverage a unique chemistry um, on a, based on a chemical called PEI, polyethylenamine, um, that is sort of well documented for having among the lowest regeneration temperatures uh, of any solvent in this industry. And that matters a lot. And we regenerate a solvent at something like 80 to 85 degrees C, uh, whereas, for example, a Climeworks in Iceland, who, again, Climeworks really developed their chemistry uh, way earlier than only took it to Iceland some, at some point later. And they need something more like 100, 120 degrees C thereabouts. Yeah. But every degree C indifference there unlocks exponentially more like waste and low-grade heat. And also, like, though that heat will have like you know exponentially less um, uh, competing uses and that's ultimately what really drives us and again for that type of heat there is hundreds of gigawatts of capacity in the yeah. east african rift valley that we want to and will have to really drive back down the cost curve and there is again there's elements of chemistry there's all like many elements of mechanical engineering that are quite unique about our approach that we have patented about essentially how you sort of pack more solvent into a machine uh, using blowers instead of fans for us again there's, there's a lot of technicalities there um, and then finally modularity is something that people like mentioning about um, their data capture and it is a modular technology that's true but modularity is a lot easier to do if you have the sort of brains and hands to really do it at scale modularity is expensive because you're repeating many Mod steps over and over and much as you get better just just to clarify what you said so like the idea that you have not one centralized plant that yeah. like just you know has number of very large scale and expensive components uh, and that also means that it's hard to learn from previous applications and bring a technology down the cost curve but instead having sort of 
uh, a number of different modules or like just individual machines uh, that sort of replicate the same technology over and over and over again much like solar panels have done for example uh, and that is usually seen as a key to having fast learning rates and driving technology down the cost curve very quickly um, and sort of I think thanks for uh, um, asking that and just to back to the point there like modularity takes brains it takes hands it takes uh, the capacity to do things over and over and do it in better every time and again for that it all really matters what your sort of cost of talent is and having sort of like the abundant talent around like you know welders and electricians and engineers that can really like drive um that modular learning and again that is something where we uniquely leverage uh just the talent that we have to just move a lot faster than everyone else so in the past 20 months we have built seven at scale back machines all of them uh, north of a ton a year in capacity um which also means that again, I think there's only, as far as we know, about like 50 to 100 of those at that scale in the world today. And crucially, that just means that it shows the sort of rate of progress that we have been able to make, uh, even in that, my emphasis that on a fraction of funding of some of our uh, well-respected peers. Cool. I, I, you may have touched on this with what you said, and I have to say, as you're talking, I, I almost feel it'd be great to see a a slide. If we've got one, I might put it up. So for people watching, because I can see visually, it's probably a lot easier to explain, you know, the kind of methodology here. My, my question was going to be around, you know, DAC is often criticized in terms of energy in versus removal out, right? Which is, sounds to me that this is what you're tackling. If I'm asking a question you just already tackled, let me know, or, or maybe go into a bit more detail around, you know, how is Octavia Carbon approaching this? What makes you, maybe not unique, but... Are there misunderstandings in terms of how people see that working in terms of the intensity and energy? Yeah, what what, what is it you're you're doing that will really make sure the efficiency is there? And how long does that take? Is this a journey of it's going to take you a few years to get to kind of ultimate efficiency of removed carbon versus energy in kind of thing? Yeah, no, and um, to be clear, I think we agree with most of DAC's critics. Okay. <laughs> Deploying DAC in a lot of the places where it's being talked about today you know, has somewhat questionable climate benefits. Again, it is, we are in the early stages of the technology and you could argue that a big priority right now is just to build as much capacity as we can. But it is true at the same time that if you deploy a DAC machine on the same grid as a coal plant, for example, um, really like the electrons that you use should be used to retire that coal plant. Um, and even worse, unless you like really do sort of hourly matching of like the electricity that you use with a renewable energy source, you might actually use some of those coal plant at like electrons to power your machines. And that ultimately would mean that you don't actually have a tangible climate benefit. Yeah. Kenya is different there because our grid is 93% renewable. The right, specific yeah. substation that our pilot project will draw power from uh, only gets power from geothermal and and wind power um, so like there won't be any fossil electrons anywhere near our DAC machines and that is something that differentiates our deployment again it is another reason why Iceland was sort of a forerunner in deploying uh, that technology because again it has a very similarly renewable grid um, uh, today and I think really that is something uh, that is worth stressing but I do think that ultimately the question of renewable energy and how we use it is very true again there is competing uses for renewable energies and most of all we should just stop burning fossil fuels uh, today. Um, but it's also really important to say that, again, renewable energy doesn't have to be 
a scarce resource. And that's not just talking about some future utopia when like we all like have solar panels on our roofs and cars and God knows what. But the point here is that, again, if you look at certain places on Earth, they just inherently have a lot of renewable energy, again, energy in the thermodynamic sense. Yeah. Uh, and again, geothermal areas are one where you have very concentrated renewable energy. Again, I was just recently at Kenya's main geothermal hub, Okaria, and you would go to sort of like see wellheads and you would see sort of like, you know, ex, like, you know, um, expulsion valves that like, you know, ex, just ex, uh, ex, like, um, just expand, um, geothermal steam and these would be like pipes like two three meters in diameter and they would just have the most enormous amounts of steam conceivable just coming out of it at massive massive pressure and again that is raw primal energy that we could use to power things like air capture again that is currently that heat is currently a waste product from geothermal power production uh, and it is something that if used correctly, can really power DAC to gigaton scale. Um, yes, their energy requirements, just even thermodynamically for their data capture, are daunting. Um, but if you go to the right places, um, then that is something that can be overcome. So yes, I think if we rely on renewable energy from like less concentrated sources, like you know solar and wind and so on, which are great, uh, but again, don't have that concentration of renewable energy and power, and they need much more manufactured inputs, again, solar panels, wind turbines, and so on, um, then there might be limitation there, but that limitation isn't inherent to what direct air capture is and can be. It might just mean that direct air capture is location-specific industry, and that would be our case at our argument and you know what you might still see us go to different uh, locations around the world even in the nearer term and that's partly because again uh the, the right policy incentives matter and it matters that we can sort of like trial that technology in different sort of geographies and uh you know different situations um and ultimately today it matters that we build more capacity and get DAC down the cost curve and a crucial part of that is just building more of it um, but yes in the longer term um our strong hypothesis is that this will go where you have the right natural and human resources. And East Africa is the best place in the world for that. In terms of, it's a good segue, especially as we have a bit of the manufacturing noise in the background, the getting down the cost curve, curve by building more of it. I've seen, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, I think you're, you've put some kind of targets out there of getting to the point of building one machine a day. Is that right? First, yes. And, um, yeah, how, how well, yeah, what is what is required to meet that kind of target? And actually, talk us through what 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 does one of these machines look like? What are we talking about spec wise, size wise, um, and what will that put you at if you hit that target? How many of these, you know, machines are you going to have kind of online within the next year? Yep. Um, so the machine that we're currently building um, is cylindrical. Uh, it has about two meters in diameter, uh, a lot of sorbent packed inside. Um, in a sort of special configuration that, that sort of our proprietary technology. Um, and uh, with that unit, we are currently capturing about 20 tons of CO2 per year or so. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that the initial pilot um, will probably start with about sort of 12 of these machines uh, by later this year, but we want to ramp up very quickly from there um, and eventually have sort of 50 to 100 of those, which will form Project Hummingbird, our pilot plant of about a thousand tons in capacity. Um, and the idea is to then just ramp that up very quickly. And, you know, like, I often think that, yes, like, you know, building a machine a day sounds a bit daunting, um, but in the context of humanity, what humanity is capable of, it's entirely achievable. And I think it's 
something that maybe is, I think, oftentimes people in our very nascent industry stress a bit too much about what it will take to, say, scale the manufacturing of DAC machines. Because, you know, like there is um, companies today, like car manufacturers, that manufacture like 30,000 cars a day, right? And yeah. uh, there's nothing yeah, telling us that this is impossible to do for DAC machines, which, if anything, are a lot lower in complexity and also have the advantages you can sort of deploy them in highly centralized sort of like, like you know, modular machines, but in sort of centralized um, storage and DAC and storage locations, basically around the right energy resources and so on. Um, and in that, that gives us just tremendous optimism that we can sort of replicate what we've done for solar. Because in many ways, with solar, we've never seen the true power of like the modular learning or our manufacturing. And it's partly because half of the cost of installing a solar panel is just putting the bloody thing on your roof. Yeah. <laughs> and that is very expensive. Or like putting it like somewhere like the soft costs, as you might call them, for solar are like uh, upwards of 50% of the actual cost uh, of like the total cost. But that is something that doesn't have to be the case for their day capture because we can install these modules around centralized sites and the efficiencies that you can drive from that entire value chain from manufacturing to project development and further um, are going to be really fabulous and that makes it very exciting to work on this in, in here in Kenya where we have all the right ingredients to make these large-scale projects happen. Does that, um, in terms of your scale-up, uh, obviously huge focus on manufacturing right now and getting machines out there, are you Another thing you hear a lot about DAC, we've seen so much investment, particularly last year, um, you know, into the space, but not necessarily the delivery of the end product being, you know, sequestered carbon, removed carbon. How how far are you already at that stage? How far from that stage? You know, is there a point where you just switch on and, and you're, you know, pulling out, you know, tons and tons a, a day? Or, or what's the, the kind of journey of that? Yeah, and I think people rightly, again, point to DAC and it is like, you know, our sort of mandate to really show that we can deliver. Um, and again, much as it is a new technology, I think um, that will be the test of, you know, whether our promises are real and 2030 is very much the deadline for that. Yeah. Um, so for us uh, as a company, we've sold about 1500 uh, tons of carbon credits. Um, and including like one relatively large deal quite recently, about a thousand tons that we uh, signed with Climate Co, um, which was, uh, I believe, one of the largest pre-purchases in common water. Um, so very exciting. And essentially, the timeline for us um, basically uh, looks that looks like we'll start delivering from later this year. Um, so we have a storage partner, as I mentioned, Cellar Mineral Storage, the fabulous uh, Dr. Claire Nelson and Corey Patterson are the co-founders of that. And um, they have a site which they are now developing as well. And together with them, we want to start commercial operations by Q4 this year. And cool. essentially, um, our target is to just scale up very quickly from there. Again, a lot of the hurdles just really are in that first of its kind. Um, but we can take that pilot site in that very same site to very large scale. Again, we're talking thousands, if not millions of tons of uh, DAC and storage capacity on that site. And essentially for us, the idea is really to like um, lock in a design that we can then really turn to mass manufacturing, which again, we are very well positioned to do here in Kenya. And again, for reference, we already have some 20,000 square feet of manufacturing space uh, that we are now leveraging and looking to scale up very quickly as well. And so it really is about like getting a production line going and just like churning out it, machines. What is the, um, I come from a software background, 
you know, kind of 20 years, not a hardware background. So, but, but I wonder how the comparisons are. With software, you are continually testing, redesigning, failing, succeeding. You know, it's this kind of, do you, have you guys, you know, mapped out, here's the perfect DAC machine, we know what it's going to do, or is it, hey, we get going, we test, we change, we redeploy. What, what, is there a, or is it somewhere in the middle? You know, like I said, coming from a software background, that's kind of what, what you're doing all the time, but I, I don't know. Certainly, you don't do that with a car <laughs> necessarily, but yeah, except, no, no. except for failure is like efficiency. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. And failure is a critical part of the process. Again, I think it's you learn by failing. I think on the hardware side, we'd look to just build prototypes and just fail ideally at smaller scale before taking things to that larger scale. But um, you know, that makes it sound a lot easier than it is because there will be just places where you fall on your face, even building that large machine, which is partly why that modularity is just like so crucial to actually building projects, you know, on budget and on time because you don't have the sort of compounding risks of having lots of large scale components, all of which, you know, could have their own delays and cost overruns and um, then you know, like like implications on everything else in the system. And you know, like our, again, and people will fiercely debate on like, you know, what the best stack machine looks like. And I don't <laughs> think anyone really can claim to know yet. We all have our TAs that we sort of work on. And we do think that we can take DAC, you know, into like a very interesting range of like, you know, two to $300 in the next few years already. And then potentially substantially lower than that in the few years, even before the end of the decade. Yeah, right. um, but essentially, like, I'll tell you sort of what, what my hypothesis here is, right? And again, I'll use an analogy from uh, solar, and that is polycrystalline silicon. So that is basically like the chemistry that has been a juggernaut of the solar industry for more than two decades. And for all that time, there were other competing chemistries and perovskites are like a very famous one where you can achieve sort of better efficiencies at tabletop, but then actually like getting that chemistry to scale and getting that stability, getting that chemistry to be stable just hasn't really been achieved to date. Um, so our thesis here is that uh, essentially solid sorbent amines are the polysilicon of um, the DAC industry, where it is a stable chemistry that has been proven today, that has a well-established supply chain that we can take to massive scale today, mm. where we can also like put those push those costs down pretty dramatically. And again, if we are in the right places, we don't have to be limited by, uh, strictly speaking, the number of kilowatt hours that we use. You will hear people say that, yes, electrochemical DAC is really interesting because it can get to electricity consumption as low as, say, I don't know, 650 or 800 kilowatt hours per ton. So even then, there's a lot of, like, you know, after post-capture processing where you just don't get away with necessarily, like, the, the, those much lower sort of, like, kilowatt hour numbers. But ultimately, it's really important to stress that what we're optimizing for here aren't kilowatt hours per ton, it is dollars per ton, right? And of course, yeah. these are co like correlated. But if we have ultra low cost kilowatt hours, um, and we don't have to use like, you know, electrons to like provide those kilowatt hours, um, then that is like, a key uh, advantage to like solid solvent amines, and especially like the ones that we're developing. Um, so that's our thesis. We are monitoring like the DAC space very closely. And again, we already have a team of 15 R&D engineers that you know, do a lot of that like you know, with, with every waking minute that they have. And we intend to have a team that is much larger than that in future still and monitor and explore many different chemistries. And even then, I will say that the chemistry is really just half the 
game to really building a DAC and storage plant. A lot of it really is just the process engineering at you know at unit level, at plant level, and so on. there's a lot of process engineering that is relatively like like um, replicable across sort of DAC installations. Um, so yeah, I mean I think we're excited and it is like a really exciting field. Lots of technological development. Um, our bet again is on things that leverage like heat, uh, just because thermodynamically, yes, you need a lot of energy, but it doesn't dictate where that that energy does have that does have to be electrons, and yeah, that's something we're we're quite excited about, um, and yeah, I think broadly speaking, our goal right now is to really just build, 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 and that's ultimately how the cost comes down. We can, you know, be relatively modular and using different chemistries and using different structures inside of machines to leverage different chemistries. Um, but ultimately, the thing that we really have to get better at as a DAC industry right now is manufacturing and deploying DAC. And that is ultimately like where we see a key USB, much as I don't want to like talk down on the technology that we have in-house, which is also again patent pending, proprietary, and something we're very proud of. Hundreds of thousands of hours of, of R&D um, time that go into that, uh, but very much something uh, which, which we think is one part of a bigger puzzle here as well. How is the, um, just, just touching on something you said there, how's the collaboration we're obviously we're in a compet not we I'm, I'm talking about what, what you you do in terms of that but there's a competitive nature to what you're doing um because you know there's other DAC companies but we're all on the same mission here to provide or to hit the same outcome is there good collaboration on the DAC side of things in terms of r&d and, and learning and because there's a lot of a lot of design happening um, yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic. Again, I think it takes conviction to start a company and to be part of a startup, right? Like, mm. I think, again, like, it is, this is slightly heretical in the car removal space, but, you know, like, <laughs> while we all talk a lot about sort of a portfolio approach, and there is very good science-based reasons to do so, um, I think at the end of the day, you know, like, being part of a startup takes the conviction to think that your approach is special and, like, yeah, has sure. really high potential. Um and similarly, I would have very strong conviction that like our approach really can take us to sort of multi, multi gigaton scale and that it is special as compared to other forms of uh, calm removal and then, you know, and back in, in within that as well. So, but I do think again, ultimately like the m main opponent right now is the fact that nobody knows about even calm removal, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that is something, a mission that we all share and like, you know, um, you know, really getting more people to know and care about calm removal, establishing a shared set of standards. And again, I think just uh, like almost like a shared set of rules that we all like compete under. Uh, again, like durability, you know, additionality, calm removal efficiency, and so on. Um, and yeah, I think from there, I mean, let let the science flourish, let the engineering uh, flourish. I think there's a lot of interesting different approaches all with their own challenges, whether that's like sustainable biomass sourcing or like, you know, the availability of alkaline materials for enhanced shock weathering and so on. Um, personally, I, we do believe that there's a really high fidelity of DAC 
really has a lot to give. Being able to measure atoms and really like being able to specify to the milligram how much CO2 we take, uh, we do think will have a special role for especially regulatory markets in future mm. where that fidelity just really matters. We cannot afford to do another sort of 20 years of carb markets the way we've done them, right? Like where we've sold a lot of promises, but really like um, not necessarily climate benefits that are commensurate with that. Mm. Um, and I think that's just, um, again, something where we think we have to balance collaboration and competition. I do think maybe we don't, you know, like, I think we, we don't necessarily stress that, you know, like there will ultimately be a whittling down of approaches to what works. And I think in that sense, it, it's important, I think, at least as a sort of CEO and founder to think competitively at times as well. Um, uh, but ultimately, I do think that right now the focus is on growing the pie and very much on just trying what works. And so I think in that sense, uh, let a thousand like blossoms bloom. And we are super excited to work with many, many partners in this industry as well, much as we have strong conviction behind what we do. Yeah, I agree. The the um, you know, this kind of mission of just being able to educate really the market, the biomarket about carbon removal more generally. I mean, there is a challenge here when you work on the the side that we do being producers, you know, I saw a, a, a graphic the other day, which was like a, a map of all of the different standards and, and, and everything that goes above that. And you needed a magnifying glass to get in there. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, if you're on the buyer side of carbon removal and, and you were shown this and you're just trying to understand <laughs> this portfolio of technologies you're buying, man, there's a there's definitely a gap that needs to be bridged there in just you know, simplifying and, and, and aggregating some of these, some of these methodologies, um, totally. regulatory positions, standards and everything else. So, Yeah, totally. No, I think, I mean, yeah, I'm interested in your, your take. I mean, you, you shared some of it, but like, what excites you about biochar versus other approaches? And I think like, um, how do you see that, like playing alongside Dirk Day Capture? Because I will openly say that I'm a huge fan of biochar specifically. Sure. Like I was actually, thinking in between starting a DAC company and a biochar company and DAC went out for me, but <laughs> biochar has a lot to give in the scale that it can do today and the costs and the durability of it. Like uh, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Well, I'll, so, so to clarify my, my question around collaboration, it was actually the collaboration between the different DAC companies. So, but it's led us to an interesting point in the conversation and, and I will explain because it's a good segue as well for my next question. So for me, the, the, the work that we do, which is with smallholder farmers, which is, training them to create biochar from crop waste, how to charge that biochar with manure so it can be used as a fertilizer, tracking that process, you know, remo the removal of carbon is ultimately our business model and how we're able to then monetize the business. Um, what attracted me really is the social impact, the environmental justice of what we do and that the fact that those farmers, you know, are not burning anymore, the, the air is clean, the, their health is improved, they're earning additional um, you know, money for, for the work they do. They're able to send their kids to school because of that. And all of this is re resulting in carbon removal. So, yeah, for me, it's, you know, I haven't come from an environmental background, actually. I've come from a social impact kind of background, and, and that's led me into biochar life. I also live in a place where right now, in the next two, three weeks, everyone around me is going to start burning their crop waste and I'm going to be breathing the most polluted air in the world. So it's, it's yeah, that, that is without doubt. You know, my passion is not so much the biochar itself, but what it can do 
um, as a product in terms of, you know, enriching and improving the lives of, of um, the farmers that work with it. So, and the segue... 100% man, yeah. Was, yeah, I mean, talk to me a little bit about, you touched on this at the beginning, but, um, you know, environmental justice, I mean, you, you guys are making machines, so it's not so obvious with what you do, but you are sitting in, in Kenya, you are building a team. So, yeah, I mean, in, how do you, you know, how do you approach environmental justice social impact of the work you do what does it mean to octavia carbon as a as a strategy and yeah talk to us a bit about that yeah no um great question and i will say that like at a really high level i think the fact that we are globally competing in a sort of high-tech segment does make us proud we want to show people that africans can build the future and again i think that itself is one thing that we're super proud of that motivates all of us to sort of come to work each day and just like do you know like that they capture because we do think that it is a key part of kenya's economic growth story in the future and something that can really catapult this country and this region into high income country status again sort of going back to my sure. international development days but there is also like um more sort of direct impacts from the work that we do and i think one really key one and for those interested i can highly recommend that you sort of google james mwangi's ted talk um on the great carbon valley uh, which then also spawned by the way another back project developer led by villa Nirangu, that that's a good friend of ours um but essentially the problem that kenya has and a lot of countries in the global south like kenya is that it has a lot of renewable energy potential and it is also crucially starting out from a lower base of fossil energy on its grid um but the thing it is missing is the sort of industrial baseload offtake for that electricity. So Kenya has sort of quadrupled its geothermal capacity over the past decade. We've gone from just over 200 megawatt hours to now more, almost 900 megawatt hours of geothermal. Um, but the thing that's, that's sort of been missing is like for industrial offtake to sort of grow commensurate with that. And we today have about one gigawatt hour a day of geothermal electricity, zero carbon electricity, um, or like 17 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, which is like some of the lowest carbon intensity electricity we'll find anywhere on earth. Um, and that just is waste. And ultimately, waste means that consumers on a grid will pay higher costs. Um, and if, especially if you can turn, turn that revenue into like, so if you can turn that waste into revenue by like, you know, us providing that stable offtake that geothermal especially needs, um, that can be really transformative because ultimately what it does is it can both, you know, lower electricity prices, spark green industrialization away, you know, like lower electricity prices for uh, everyday Kenyans to like, you know, um, harness electricity to power their lives um, but also crucially any grid on earth relies on industrial off-takers to cross-subsidize um, the rural users of that power grid basically right and about 30 percent of kenyans today aren't on the grid not because the mm. kenyan government isn't very keen to do so but just because there isn't anything that can cross-subsidize that um electrification of a rural area and in that sense can like their day capture can be a really interesting and crucial way to like drive energy access in in kenya and beyond that in east africa as well um and that is just something that we are really excited by so like the green growth that this can create by the way in one of the areas hardest hit by climate change so kenya and the horn of africa more broadly is just coming out of a five-year drought that's really really been quite devastating to this region um and yeah there's 
addressing that with green growth and you know like mm. energy access and jobs and manufacturing is something that we care a lot about so yeah no we're quite excited about the impact we can create uh, again less direct than say you know using biochar to fertilize sure. field and i respect that work a huge amount um but nonetheless like i think really key and really driving industrialization in an area of the world that really needs it cool good stuff and what what um you know you're, you're kenya now what are, what are the putting yourself you know forward 10 years the vision for growth is it all in kenya expand within kenya or is it you know without within what you're able to share i suppose but um yeah <laughs> what's the ambitions 10 years as you get into the future yeah no great um okay so Again, I'll start with Octavia first. I'm not, I'm not sure, like, there's this sort of question there for, like, I think Kenya and, and, and for Octavia as well. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. for us, um, the future definitely is to to grow. We do think that Kenya and, again, East Africa more broadly is the best place in the world to do DAC. And I think, again, for example, the fact that other uh, DAC companies have announced Kenyan projects very much sort of emphasizes that Climeworks is coming, Greenlight Technologies is coming, and others are coming too. Um, and... Ultimately, we will still do projects outside Kenya again, as we've seen in past waves of climate tech, and we learn a lot from the solar playbook. Um, you will go to countries where you have the best policy incentives, just because that can really drive, like, you know, the scale up, like, for the deployment of the tech. And so we will go to places like the US and to Canada and to the UK now, which will just announce very generous tax subsidies. Um, and yeah, we will do project there to like scale our tech and deploy it at larger scale. Ultimately, like a low cost, you know, like development and manufacturing base in Kenya will make that a very interesting like proposition for us. Um, and yeah, but in the long term, again, hopefully 10 years from now, we can still have the majority of our deployments in Kenya and we can really like position Kenya as the world's sort of carbon removal hub and it's really exciting to see both broader carbon removal space spring up in kenya including enhanced rock wedding a lot of biochar and so on yeah. um but also that direct air capture is increasingly referencing kenya as a place to go to and that's something that that we and i am immensely proud of um and really having facilitated that in many ways um and yeah, 10 years from now, again, we want to be at sort of multi-million ton scale in Kenya, and we really want to drive DAC deep down the cost curve. The ultimate goal for direct air capture is always you want to compete with both the social cost of carbon and the regulatory cost of carbon. And because once we can do that, just given how scalable direct air capture is, um, your sort of demand can just go through the roof, basically, right? Um, and there, there is a sort of moral hazard to that, because I think... Uh, and there, there is sort of people, there is governments like Australia's, for example, until recently, that have just like, you know, relied on DAC as a magic bullet to sort of come in in 2045 and save today, basically. Uh, that is something we despise, like we don't want that uh, to distract from decarbonization. Uh, but nonetheless, the promise there is real and it does make us very excited. Um, so, yeah, I think in many ways that is where we hope to be. Again, costs ranging, you know, like, in a ideally less than $100 per ton, but even like between $1 and $200 per ton, you're like very attractive because you're getting, you're competing with the regulatory cost of carbon in many markets. Um, but ultimately, we think that, you know, costs like far below $100 per ton are very much possible for DAC. We don't expect anyone to believe that. Um, we're very much on, out to, to show people uh, in practice what that looks like, uh, but it is really exciting times for us and for Kenya and DAC. 
Well, it sounds like you might have knocked up one machine during the, the uh, period of this podcast. I can hear in the background. So, <laughs> Sorry. If you, if you, no, if you carry on like that, you're, I'm sure you're going to get there. So um, I didn't have any more questions unless there was anything I didn't ask that you'd like to share. Otherwise, it'd be great to share your, your details where people can learn more about uh, Octavia Carbon, get in touch with yourself, um, anything else, then, then yeah, that'd be great. Great. So yeah, I mean, um, anyone who wants to see the hammering in person is more than welcome. Uh, we are based just in the outskirts of Nairobi, and we love having visitors. I think it does make DAC look more tangible. Uh, if you've actually seen a DAC machine in person, to understand the working principles and the plans of the future uh, a bit better from that. Um, other than that, I mean, uh, stay tuned. We we will become the world's second DAC company to inject CO2 in the ground with our partners at Seller. Uh, and that is something that we are very excited by and that uh, we will sort of, you know, queue a good bit of publicity around. Uh, and beyond that, uh, do get in touch. You can find us at uh, Um And yeah, if you're up in Kenya, uh, don't be a stranger and say hi. Cool, I will do. I'm sure we'll get to meet in person sometime soon. So Martin, um, yeah, really appreciate you joining the podcast. Um, great work you're doing uh, congrats on the success and um, yeah let's keep in touch thank you so much Matt cheers cheers